Hey, I'm Maka. This is Josie Butler calling from Central Victoria. How are you? Josie, I'm good. I'm good. What's happening? Uh, just out of Newstead, Maka. We're on a property called Joyce's Park. At the moment, I'm walking a mob of about 600 Merino Weathers home to the shearing shed for shearing this week. It's a bit fresh this morning compared to what I've been used to for the past nine months. I was up at that Norman Tim working on the cattle property up there in the Gulf of Queensland. Oh, that'd be hot up there, Josie. Yeah, it was, was pretty hot. It was pretty humid too, Macca. Yeah. How old are you, Josie? I'm 19, Macca. Yep. Good on you, Josie. Righto. Thanks for that, Macca. city, the scrub, and the farmer in the pub. They love it all over Australia. There's a radio show that Australians all know. If you're rich or you ain't got a cracker. They tell stories so grand of this vast, timeless land, and they call it Sunday with Macca. They all call it Sunday with Macca. Yeah, they all call it Sunday with Macca. Get on with it, Macca. That was Josie. Good morning, Josie. Uh, just before Christmas, um, she was shearing, and I've just had an email from her. She said. Uh, uh, Shearing went extremely well. 120 bales of wool were sent to Melbourne to be sold next week. That's last week, is it? Yeah, next week. This will be the best returns for wool my father has seen in his lifetime. A fantastic time to be in the industry. Years of patience and perseverance have finally paid off. We'll stay in touch as Josie Butler, Joyce's Park, Newstead. Uh, and we've got a lovely photo. We said, Well, there's already a photo on our Facebook site of Josie with the... With the uh, with the sheep, which is lovely, a lovely photo. Um, and there's another great one with the truck and the, and the bales just about to head off to Melbourne. So you can find that on our Facebook. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can just uh, email me, macatracks at gmail.com, macatracks at gmail.com. Uh, it'll always get to me. G'day, this is Macca. Hi, Macca. It's Sonia here from Byron Bay. Sonia, I was just there. I, I was just there the other day. Well, did you have a lovely time? I did have a lovely time. Um, the drums, the drums, <laughs> the yes. drums never stop. No, they don't. <laughs> now, um, I heard you were going you to talk about coffee, so I thought I'd start the conversation off by telling you my story about coffee. Yeah, go. My parents were European. My dad was Austrian, and we came to Australia in 52. Uh-huh. And my dad was um, very well-travelled, but um, he had a wonderful, he had wonderful ideas, and but he didn't have the courage of his convictions. So he was trying to get somebody to back him to start a coffee shop. And do you know what they said? Um, no, tell me. Who would sit in a shop and drink coffee? <laughs> Isn't it amazing? It was in that Huey Lund book. Um, remember when he went to China and he was trying to get into China from Hong Kong and uh, the uh, communist uh, Chinese had a had an office in Hong Kong and he kept going in saying, can I go in, can I go in? And, and this uh, the person behind the desk kept saying to him, you know, uh, Australians are poisonous weeds. And the other thing, he, this Chinese person behind the desk used to say, this is in the 60s, late 60s, said um, uh, Australians are an, uh, a nation of decadent coffee shop dwellers. <laughs> well, they weren't in 52. No, no. And we, and we lived in, in, uh, in Darlinghurst in, in Burke Street and um, there were three restaurants in Australia and my dad was caught on blue trains so he just... He was just appalled. Um, anyway, so if, if Dad had the courage of his convictions, I wouldn't be living in Byron Bay. I'd own it. 
<laughs> <laughs> but that's that's been a sort of a, a European tradition, hasn't it? Coffee that's shops right. and well, stuff like well, that. Yeah. That's where all the all the um, fermenting exactly. of uh, communists used to live, meet in commis- coffee shops and writers and painters and you know the uh, all those people. It was a it's a great tradition, wasn't it? It's where but, all the... but Australia was a little bit behind the times. Uh, just a little. It's, <laughs> like, it's like I was coming back from New York years ago. Uh, I was on a plane and all these blokes were. Um, uh, African Americans were in the, in the plane, and they were in a band. Right, they were coming out to Australia to play, and because I, so I went back and had you know, hello, hello, and I, he said, "Oh, where are you? Where are you from? You know, he's a big bass player or something." I said, um, oh, "I said I'm from uh, I'm from Sydney." He said, "Oh, right, Australia." I said, "Yes." He said, "Oh, he said when it's um when it's ten past six in New York, it's nineteen thirty five in uh, Sydney." <laughs> So, so, and I had to think about that for a while. Was so, he right? Yeah, well, sort of, yeah. Uh, there was a lot of uh, jazz in Sydney, like I suppose that was in the 70s. Um, we're still playing a lot of traz, trad and Dixie, and there was other things. But, yeah, we sort of caught up and stuff. But um, well, well, coming from Byron Bay, where my son and I have travelled to places like Machu Picchu and Galapagos, and whenever they, I, I tell them I come from Byron Bay, the first thing they ask is, Drugs, <laughs> and I say, yeah, sure. I'm 72. You know, yeah, yeah, we've got heaps of it, plenty in my bag. Would you like some? Um, it's it's just that perception that people have of people in Australia. I was really interested to uh, see Byron Bay. I've been to Byron Bay, you know, many times, and and sometimes just go past and have a swim or something like that, or maybe go to Lennox that um, have a swim. But lots of um, Lots of young people from all over the world, really, isn't there? Backpackers and uh, from South America and stuff. I noticed playing soccer on the beach, and it's a really a, quite a wonderful um, vibe, isn't it? If, if well, that's the world. But from the point of view of people who live here, do you know that the ratio of tourists to locals is two hundred to one? Really? And and the infrastructure is not coping. No. And the state government won't let us put in a bed tax. I mean, it's um, it, it's quite dire. Oh. Uh, it's it's it, you know lovely to have them, but um, it'd be not. I mean, places in America that have a bed tax. I mean, our, our, I don't know if you noticed our, our roads; they're mm. pathetic. Yeah. Um, we just don't have the money to pay for it. Um, and if we could get this funding, it would be um, a godsend. Yeah, you would think a, a town like Byron Bay, which has uh, got all these people coming in, you have the you have the um, music festivals and exactly. the blues and all that. You'd think you'd be. Yeah, I thought it's a bit down at heel. Um, that's uh, well, you can blame the state government for that because they won't allow us. I have been writing for the last twenty-one years that I've been here, and I've said, "Call it an environmental tax." You know, we're supposed to be green. Let's do this, but yeah. um, but they pass it on to the state government, and the state government says no. The other thing I'm going to talk about this morning, we're going to talk about trains because every time I cross over that railway line, I see that rusting railway line. I think, what a waste! Wouldn't it be nice to have the train come through once or twice a day? Um, Except, yeah, but you know how many people used to use it? Yes, That's five. I, yeah, I know. It, it wasn't profitable. And and the um, that, that tourist resort has started that solar train. Yeah, and there's people complaining about that because it's running every 10 minutes or something, isn't it? Or no, something? I think it's because it's going over um, some sort of um, heritage site. I can't, I'm not sure. I'm not no. keeping up with that. There's too many, too many things in Byron Bay that you, you just can't keep up with them all. Sonia, next time I come to Byron Bay, we'll have a coffee. Okay. <laughs> Lovely to talk to you. And you. See ya. Bye. Bye. I spent a few days in uh, Byron Bay, and every time I cross the railway track there and I look down the track, the uh, it's all rusty. <laughs> and the trains, they're stopped. And I thought we ought to talk about it because, um, 
in this modern age, people talk about transport all the time and trains seem to be a solution to that. And I thought, no, who better to talk to than David Hill, who worked in trains for many years. He's my guest this morning. Good morning, David. How are you? Good morning, Maga. Uh, Happy New Year, mate. Happy New Year. Nice to be with you again. (laughs) Yeah, you too. Um, And it's interesting... um, we're getting hot weather all over the place, and but cold weather down in Omeo and Cooma this morning, three, de- three degrees, four degrees, uh, snow above 1,900 metres. It's just it's summer. <laughs> yeah, well, it's so Australian summer. It's, it was 15 degrees on my way in here in Sydney this morning, yeah. and, and yet they predict it's going to be 38 later in the day. Oh, yeah, and, and later in the week too. We're heading to Tamworth uh, yeah, next weekend and uh, the week after. David, tell me, um, are trains still viable? I mean, that song is inter- interesting. I know the train stopped at Armadale. It used to go up to to Mwilumba, Tumut, um, um, down at Batlow. There was a railway line down there. Lovely. Up but in- it's the same all over Australia. Do you know there were 14 railway lines in Tasmania once? Now there are none. Uh, and look, the trains stopped being viable long distance when people started buying motor family motor cars. You know, when we were kids, if you went on a long distance train trip for, uh, if you lived in the bush or or if you went on holidays, you went by train, and and that stopped. And a lot of what used to be viable railways didn't didn't continue to be. Uh, I think the tragedy is though when they've cut out a service, and that song you've just played, they've just let the track and the bridges and the culverts all go to rack and ruin. Yes, exactly. uh, It's going to be enormously expensive when we look for an alternative. You mentioned Mwilumbar and Byron Bay uh, on Mm. your program before. Um, The old Mwilumbar branch line um, uh, is now, it'll have to be completely built from scratch because they've just allowed it to decline since they stopped the last train services. And it seems a scandal because we're in... The 2000s now, and, and it seems to me the imperatives of transport have changed, and there's so many people that you're going to have to have trains, it would yep. seem to me. Well, a good, a good case in point is, is um, northern New South Wales, southern Queensland, where we had a line that went from Casino to Byron Bay and then up to Mwilumbar, and you're only 30 kilometres short of the Queensland border. And in the 90s, Queensland started building a railway uh, or a, a modern railway from from Brisbane to the Gold Coast, and it, it's got to within twenty kilometres of the New South Wales border. So we, there was only there was only a gap of about forty five k between New South Wales railway and the Queensland railway, and then they they we cut out the it. New South Wales bit, and and it's it's just falling into ruin. Um, uh, you you know there's a uh, a, a solar powered uh, tourist train in yes. Byron Bay at the moment, uh, using a bit of the track, but that's only a tiny bit of the track that's that's in condition that you can use. And some of the people in Belongel are complaining about that. On the line, I've got uh, former Deputy Prime Minister Tim Fisher, who's a great train man. A great train man. Good morning, Tim. Greetings, Mac. Greetings, David, to you, to Good Book. And yes, that train is operating at Byron Bay. It's a not-for-profit Byron Bay Railroad Company, did you not cite it, Macca? Yeah, I, d- I did, but there's, but there's in the local, the local paper, the Byron Echo, which uh, <laughs> it, um, there's a there's complaints from people who live along there because I don't know why um, it says environmental considerations. They probably just don't want the train because I think it runs every every twenty minutes or every half an hour. Whereas it, it runs about six times. Sorry, not in my backyard and not at all. And they, <laughs> they could turn on for their medicine this morning. 
SBS Viceland had watched again for 10 hours. Well, it's not <laughs> no, 17 I'm, hours. This is the slow TV thing. Uh, bloody Norway. I mean, wonderful Norway. Uh, <laughs> slow, it's out of Norway. It's where they keep our global seed bolt magnificently. I've got nothing but praise for Norway, but I think I'm over slow TV. Tim, what's your perspective? Is, is the day of the train gone? I mean, David says it's just then economically non-viable, but... There are ways to get people to do all sorts of things. We force people to do all sorts and behave in all sorts of ways. Maybe we could force people, not everybody. I mean, it's not for everybody, but it seems to... I just was in Byron Bay. There were so many people in Byron Bay and buses queued up to take... What better way? I mean, you can surely you can say, well, look, there's no buses. We're having trains in the Byron well, Bay. Macker, I'm, I'm not saying the day of the train is over. In fact, as every city in the world, including Australian cities, become unmovable because of dense traffic. The mm. only solution is rail. Yeah. Is, that exactly. is that exactly. your perspective, Tim? Ra- rail freight is back with a vengeance. Uh, for example, uh, Adelaide, Perth, Adelaide, Darwin, the economy is starting to pick up again, and so is double-stack container intermodal freight, which is the joy of the USA system. Uh, but on the passenger side, uh, David Hill's right. Uh, the cities have got no choice, and so the suburban lines are being extended in Melbourne near South Morang, and the bit's happening, not enough, always too late with infrastructure for rail, but it, the clock is turning. Rail is back in the 21st century in the USA, in Great Britain, in uh, Europe especially, uh, where they do it so damn well, and it's not just uh, metro computer, uh, commuter, it is regional, sub-regional commuter, and, of course, tourism rail. Go, go, go enjoy Pitchy Ritchie between Port Augusta and Corn, one of the best in the world, or the National Railway Museum in Adelaide. And, of course, the, the critics of this um, SBS show where they're, they're doing the GAN says, if you watch, because it's, it's called slow television... <laughs> My sister loves it, but everybody else is hating it because it's it's this trip, and all you see, Tim, is the is the the driver's view out the railway track, and they're going to because they think it's been so successful, they're going to show the whole trip, which is seventeen hours. Of... But they haven't even got Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony as background, Macker. I give up on that. <laughs> Oh, dear, oh, dear. Now, David, they've had problems with uh, metropolitan railways too with, with timetables and stuff. You've been, through, been oh, there, done well, that, haven't you? It's, it's as if we learn nothing from history. This, yet again, the, the largest uh, commuter network in Australia, Sydney, they introduced a new timetable that doesn't work. And, and you'd think after 140-odd years of experience, you would know that a time ta- when a timetable is going to work or not. You, they shouldn't have introduced it, and they're going to have to either radically modified or, or abandon it altogether, which, which they've done before. And I suppose that you, you both remember Colin Taylor, who was a great advocate of yes. tra- train travel. Um, but um, it seems to me that you two are about the only two that talk up trains and we need more people talking no, up trains. No, no, look, I, I, I don't think that's true. Certainly Tim Fisher is well known as the great Australian train advocate. But I, I think common sense dictates we need, particularly in the cities more underground railways because the more you build freeways through the cities, apart from the disruption it causes for the construction, it's just going to put more cars on the road. Mm. You know, I was on, you know, one of the late infrastructure additions in Sydney, the M5 tunnel yesterday, a Saturday, and it's just chock-a-block for, for most of the day and night. Mm. In fact, David, last good point, a Saturday morning peak hour is underreported. It's inconvenient for everyone, but that peak hour for sporting kids traffic and all is getting out of hand. Macca, rail is back 
Good luck. Have a great year. Good to hear you back as well. Good on you, Tim. Thanks very much. There you go. He's a lovely bloke. He's uh, Tim Fisher. Um, David, um, it'd be nice. I'd love to see the train going into Byron Bay. We could all get in the train and get out well, there. Well, I used and... to do it regularly. At the, on the, there was a sleeper. You, and there was a car. You could put your car on the back of the train. It was the Gold Coast Motor Rail. You could leave here at 6.30 at night, have a fine dinner in the dining car, and about 10 o'clock next morning, you, you'd pull into Byron Bay. It's if like you, a dream, isn't it? It's yeah, like, you, you could take your car with you. No wonder people say, oh, we had, it, we had the best. You won't see that again. Why can't we see it again? David, nice to see you, mate. Um, nice to see you, Macca. Thanks for having me okay. on. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Diana is in the room. Is that right, Diana? That's correct, yes. Looking out the window at a, at a bit of bit of a breeze that's picking up over Foster's Bay here. Hey, a bit of weather around today, wherever you are, but it's always okay. the same. Summer's a funny sort of time, isn't it? It's a bit like, um, yeah, you get it all sorts. What's, uh, what's happening today, Diana? Oh, today is my second day of baking with some of the local girls here for the new CWA cooking competition we've got coming up. Oh. Very exciting time of the year. Yeah, when's uh, I should be there to judge some of those sponge cakes and things, Diana. It's a wonder oh. I, I haven't received an invitation and a cup of tea. I'll make sure I get I'll get an invitation <laughs> in the mail to you. I'll so, to so, so what do you do? <laughs> is the competition today or it's coming up? It's coming up. Our competition day in the rumour here is the first week in March, and then if the girls win at branch, then they go on to the regional competition, which is the whole of the far south coast. And then if they win at that level, which two of them have already, mm. then they go on to the state competition, which is held in conjunction with the CWA state conference. You're right. Is there a national competition? Imagine the national. Imagine how good the cakes would be at the national competition. My God. <laughs> You should you should taste our local ones. I mean, they, the girls yesterday baked chocolate hazelnut friends, <sighs> and they're to die for. Oh, I'm sure, Diana. I'm sure. I mean, and today I've got a seven year old who's baking giant chewy Anzac cookies. Oh well, yeah, they always go well with a cup of tea uh, and, and Anzac. They do, they do, and they and they keep real. All these CWA recipes are really good. They don't go stale in. Blink of an eye. So well, you can get Anzacs that are nice and chewy, and they're nice, and you can also get the crispy ones, can't you? Like a, a yeah, yes, crun- cr- right. crunchy ones. But um, they're What's whatever. What's your preference? Um, I suppose the chewy ones. I think. Well, I tell you what, young Bella, who's baking today, I'll talk to her today, and we might be able to package up a few and send them up to you. Would you like that? Oh yeah. How old's Bella? Bella. Bella. She's seven this year. Seven. Yes. See, isn't it amazing? Isn't cooking's the cooking and well, coffee and cooking? Um, but look, the girls in CW have been cooking forever, and they're they're always the best cooks. You know, people talk about the celebrity chefs and all these famous chefs. There'd be better meals being prepared all around Australia by mostly gals, but often blokes that are just unsung, but would be cooking just wonderful things. And the Cedar, wow! So when's your competition? First week of March. Yes. If I'm around, uh, I'll I'll come down. <laughs> We'd love you. We'll put, roll, roll out the red carpet, Mac, and no, no just roll out a sponge cake. I'll do me. That'll do. Okay, well, chocolate sponges are in the competition this year, so oh, wow. there'll be plenty of them on on offer for you too. They're lovely too, Diana. Good luck with that. That's uh, yes, and uh, yes, if a couple of uh, Bella's Anzacs, we'd love it. Okay, 
You're on. Good on you. Bye, Have a lovely day, Bagger. Good on you. Thanks, Diana. Bye. Bye-bye. I want to talk to you about knees. I met a bloke the other day, and this is his story of, well, it's a story of woe, really, but it's a cautionary tale. Um, I know lots of blokes and girls have had knee ops and some are putting them off and some of them are not and whatever. I met Paul Byron. Come and meet Paul and listen to his story. I'm talking to Paul Byron. That's right, Paul, isn't it? Yeah, Paul Byron. The reason I I wanted to talk to Paul because I saw him limping along and half my mates, including myself, got crook (laughs) crook knees and I wanted to hear Paul's story. He's got a bit of a walking stick. Tell me, you've got a bad knee, two bad knees? Two bad knees. I got two bad knees. I had them. Well, I had one knee done twice. I starting to come good, and the other one's got to be redone again in three weeks. And why has it got to be redone? Because something's gone wrong with it. It's seizing up and stiffening up, and I lost me bend. And normally, you have about 100. You when you're old, you got about 110 degree. I got about 65 degrees. That there, that yeah. bend I got there. Uh. Yeah, I mean, means you can't walk, and the other one bends good now. It's been done, and uh, it was stuffed up from the beginning of the operation. Uh, about eight years ago, they were doing all the legs, and sometimes they make a stuff up and they don't know it. You know what I mean? And all of a sudden you pay the penalty for the rest of your life. And then what's happened is because my legs seized up, all the soft tissue and tendons and stuff haven't been used for a long while. So when they operate, they've got to fix all those up. You know what I mean? So i got a bloody stiff leg, and uh, it takes months and months to get them fixed. Or maybe never. What did you do for a job, Paul? I was a wall and floor tile, wore my knees out. And I, I'm, well, I, I know a bloke who uh, lays carpet, same thing. Same thing. You, you sort of use your knees when you're yes, laying carpet, that's don't right. you? Same as the floor, you're on your knees all the time and they get worn out. And all your sinews and all your tissue parts around their soft tissues get damaged. Not just the leg, the whole lot. They put a knee in there about $30,000 a pop. And if you're not in private health cover, you're forever on a waiting list. And uh, when they put them in, uh, they put a knee in, and they've got a couple of adjustments in them, like a, a universal in the car. What happens to them is that when they put them in, they've got to be set to a degree and all the rest of it, just like anything else. And if they're not done exact right, or well, you're in a bit of trouble. And what's happened to me was that they done a leg, and then all the settings are on a computer now, and then if you do the second leg, they transfer the information from one leg across and put it into the next. If there's a mistake in the first one, you've got it in the second one. <laughs> That's what's happened to me. And it's pretty rare, but it does happen. You know? So now I've got to get the other one taken out and put in. And the ones, normally they're about, you know, they're, they, they fit in your knee. The ones I've got now are like a Long John Silver leg. They go nearly from just above your ankle to up between your hip and your knee. And they're a big one, and they have a, a single pin ball joint in them. They have no adjustment, and they're not as strong as the other ones, but they work. So you're going in soon, are you? Uh, I'm going in in three weeks up at John Flynn Hospital. But as I said, if you're ever going to get a leg done, you go in, check the doctor's going to do the work, and make sure it's okay, because what you find is that doctors who make mistakes end up on the internet. You can find all this when, you, when all these young kids can. And uh, make sure you've got someone who's going to do a good job to start with and knows what he's doing. Because there's a lot of people coming into this business, one of the biggest business and money turnover. Because when you look at it, the joint I just had put in was $38,000 just for that joint. Uh, you're in hospital, you've got to pay all the hospital bills. I'm in there for three weeks, so I've got to get me both, I've got the other one readjusted. I happened to get a blood clot when they done the second one, they haven't finished it yet. I got a blood clot and had to stop. So I go in there and I'll be in for three weeks and learn to walk again. Oh, what a bummer. So a lot of money. 
a lot of money. When you look at it, a, a, a leg's over fifty thousand dollars for a knee joint. You know, and uh, I've already had them done, so they go up and up and up. <laughs> I spent this quarter, it's over a quarter of a million dollars being spent in my legs, and I still can't walk properly. Paul, uh, tell me about Ballina. Yes, yeah, I've been here since '86. I come from Sydney, and uh, it's, it was a pretty sleepy town when I come here, and it's just started to grow since I've been here. And I went in to grow on coffee when I come up here. And uh, we grow our own coffee. We just had a bit of a wipeout with the hailstorms here, as you heard. Our roof of our house got wiped out, car got demolished, the crop got ruined, and everything else. But uh, we grow coffee here. My son now, he's the, he does it all. He's got a, a place at Austinville, uh, a commercial site where we roast the coffee for a lot of the shops around this area and the Gold Coast. We just won six medals at, a, at the Golden Bean, which is a worldwide competition. And we've got a gold medal, I think three, three silvers, got three runner-uppers and three bronzes. Well, good luck with your knee, off, uh, uh, Paul. Yeah, uh, but anyway, just make sure that you check everything up. And when you look at the legs, uh, when they operate on people, temp- I, I, because I've been into so many programs with these broken people, I'm a dud. And we've got, we've got what they call a duds class, uh, all, the, all the repair work. 10% of the people get operated on their legs. They come out of hospital in five days and they never look backwards. Other people will go in, there's from 10 to 50%, they might take three months to get going. Over 50% might take a year, and there's 20% of duds. And there's 5% of people that lose arms and lose their limbs and that. There's a whole lot of stuff that you've got to really look into and make sure you get everything right before you go into it, and it comes with a lot of endone and a lot of pain. All right, Paul, I'm glad right I stopped then. to talk to you, mate. Paul, great to talk to you, right and good, right good luck with your knee. Yeah. Nice, nice to meet you. I'm looking forward to getting my leg done, not the pain. <laughs> I'll be in hospital three weeks this time around. Good on you, mate. See you later. Hi, Martha. Yeah? Yeah, you? I'm good. Who's this? I'm Cody. Cody, is it? Yeah. Not a great line, Cody. Where are you, Cody? Um, I'm in Coopie, Queensland. And what are you doing? Mustering. Oh, you're mustering. Is it hot out there? Yeah. What's it, what sort of temperature is it out there? But we've had a cool change this week. Oh, that's good. How old are yeah. you, Cody? I'm 11. 11, and uh, how's the mustering going? Yeah, pretty good. That's Two a... wild ones. And who, who are you mustering with? Uh, like Pop and Dad and his friends. Oh, and his friends. So how many of you out there? Um, uh, I think six or seven. There you go. I wish I was out there mustering with you, Cody, but I, I don't like this hot weather. It's been 40 degrees where I've been, um, and, yeah. th- and that's pretty warm. But you've got a cool change out there, eh? Yeah, just a little one. Yeah, and uh, and where are the uh, cattle going to? Into the yards. Yeah, into the yards, and then they're going to uh, transport it, are they? Yeah. There you go. All right. And you go to school in Quilby, do you, Cody? Yeah, St. Finbar's. St. Finbar's. Yeah. What's that like? Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. But I'm going to Downlands next year. To Downlands? Yeah. Where's that at? Toowoomba. Toowoomba? Yeah. Oh, so you're going to board there, are you? Yeah. Oh, there you go. Oh, well, that'll be that'll be interesting too, Cody. Yeah. If I get up to Toowoomba, I'll, uh, I'll look you up. Yeah, okay. I'll come up to Downlands and say, can I speak to Cody? How about that? Yeah. That sounds good. All right, Cody. Uh, what's your What's your dad's name? Ben O'Barnes. What? Sorry again. 
Ben O'Barns. Ben O'Barns. All right. Um, nice to talk to you, Cody. Yeah. Uh, and thanks for your call. Yeah, okay. See you, mate. Bye. Recently, I was out in the middle of uh, Queensland with a drilling team. Come and meet Scotty Hoffman, who drills, well, he drills all over the world, but at the moment, he's drilling for water in Australia. And I'm talking to the uh, the boss driller, Scott Hoffman. Is that right, Scott? Uh, yes. Yeah. How are you, Scotty? Uh, not too bad. How long have you been drilling holes? Since 1984. All over the place, I suppose? Uh, yep, everywhere virtually in Australia. A couple of tours overseas, Canada and Indonesia and Kazakhstan. What's that like? Very different, very different. <laughs> Tell me about Kazakhstan. It's a very wild place. People are nice, but uh, yes, yeah, conditions aren't as nice. What were you doing, drilling for there? Water? Always water? Uh, no, it was uh, gas. So you'll drill for anything? You just Yeah. At the moment you're doing water here in yeah. uh, outback yeah. Queensland? Yeah, well basically, um, like I said, well I started actually with Daly Brothers. Uh, in uh, 84 and spent uh, about 18 years with them and then decided to go overseas and do a few things and get into the gas side. It's all part of like development process you know then come back here and you know they gave me an offer too good to refuse and look after me quite well here so because I've got my class 3 artesian license we're few and far between and scarce to come by so they've got me sitting out here now. And how did you get into the drilling business? Scott, what, what happened there? Well, my father, he was on the oil rigs. Yeah, it was one of those things. And you've drilled in Canada. What was that for? Well, that was for water for a couple of mine sites. Mm. Yeah, we were doing 19-inch um, wells there down to 800 metres, putting in big summer and submersible pumps to pump the water out into a great big lake because of like an open cut, so the mine wouldn't flood. They'd have to have had to, these great big monstrous pumps there. I suppose you're in demand, a well-paid job because everybody's drilling for stuff, whether it's gas or oil or water or whatever. Somebody's yeah. looking for something in the middle of the earth. Oh, yeah. Any construction site's got to be done with you know, tech stuff or you know, any any mine or anything you know, needs exploration work done because you have your initial phase where they do all the investigation and then, then they come through and the engineers then do another lot of holes to then do the proper engineering for figures and then when the construction stays goes through they they drill again so you know nothing virtually gets done or built you know unless you know they know what's in the ground and foundations of what they can do. Scotty you enjoy the job? Yeah it has its moments yeah bad days but uh, I I love my drilling and I love being the only only hard thing about here is being away from family. And where's family where's home? Uh, Brisbane at the moment and I've got two twin boys at the moment that are six and you know and you miss them like crazy and yeah. You should have bring them out here. They love it out here, mate. Oh yeah, <laughs> I do actually bring them out occasionally, or every now and again, you yeah. know, stuff. I always say I've got to rub them and you know, get a job closer to town, but I love, I love the drill. Yeah, <laughs> and it's interesting, isn't it, when you yeah. think of what's down there, big artesian basin like full of this yeah. lovely, beautiful water. water. You'd love to go down and have a look at it, actually, wouldn't you? Yeah, I would. Yeah. Well, it's for people like until actually see a flowing bore, they don't understand the principles of let, like that water gets recharged from the Great Dividing Range, you know, from the Toowoomba and right along the east coast. And it goes Runs up to New Guinea too, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, right underneath, and then and then there's certain levels where it comes up and down, and then depending on the, the overburden and the pressure, you know, and like that, and then hot too because some of the stuff in the, in the southwest corner, you know, goes down to, you know to that mantle, you know, where they're doing a lot of geothermal in the sea, uh, top part of South Australia. Like I say, it's very hard when we start doing these artesian bores and we've got to deal with the hot water and stuff and mm. some of the pressure. So we have to keep our wits about us. Yeah, dangerous job can be. It uh, can be, yeah. Especially like if you let the, the same as with gas, if you let it get uncontrollable, one minute, you know, you can have a great big washout around the back of the rig and you know, and the whole rig. 
everything could fall over, you know, so we've got to make sure our cementing and everything is done right. That's know, why so. I'm wearing this hard hat, Scotty. How yeah. do I look, all right? <laughs> yeah, well, I shouldn't really say it, but in the old days, you know, we used to come out here with just a pair of shorts and, you know, and that, that was it, no hard hat, no PPE. Yeah, but now we go rules and regulations. You know, you got to dress up to the nines, and you know, and never only because you know, like through the years, you know, you get people out here. No matter, some people learn quickly. Other people, no matter how much training you do, they're just a danger to themselves, and you have to move them on. And they're the ones that sort of like have the accidents and virtually change a lot of stuff. Like safety-wise, is good in one way, but in one way, it slows jobs down, and that's where a lot of people don't understand that 90% of the time it works, 10% of the time it nimbles us a bit. You know, it's got a great to meet you and good luck ring us next time you're in kazakhstan or canada or wherever well in canada like say we the job actually run over into winter where it was minus 20 and we had icicles off the rig you only dressed up in the arctic swimming suits and stuff and you go from one extreme to out here to you know where it's 40 odd degrees in the, you go to the desert yeah great to yeah. meet you scott good on you okay thank you